Welcome to the Justin Peters Program, where we're searching the scriptures to see if these things are so, studying to show ourselves approved, rightfully dividing the word of truth so that we can worship God in spirit and truth, deepening our knowledge of God, thereby enabling us to deepen our love for God. Here's your host, Justin Peters. Welcome to the program, ladies and gentlemen. I hope that you are doing well and want to thank you for tuning in to this week's program. I have received a number of emails from you from the last couple of programs. I really, really appreciate your encouraging feedback, and I thank you very much for that. And some of you have emailed asking about my health because I, uh, I'm surmising that Mike Miller, my friend in Oklahoma who uh, keeps the uh, Justin Peters Ministries Facebook page up, has put something on there about a health concern that I have, and indeed I do. It's nothing serious. Uh, it's It's been going on for several months now, off and on. I've had some, uh, some significant pain, but uh, we've finally figured out it is a kidney stone. I have got a pretty large kidney stone, apparently, three by... 3.3 by 7 point something millimeters, I think. And uh, so, anyway, didn't know what it was. Uh, the possibilities were uh, kidney stone or cancer. And so did an MRI and uh, came back that it is the former of the two. So that's good. Kidney stones are not great, but uh, certainly better than cancer. So I'm going to go back to the doctor Monday uh, for a follow-up appointment, and he will then tell me what we're going to do about this thing. So uh, I do thank you for your concern, and I appreciate your prayers. I've I've had some pain. I've not I've not had the drop to my knees, you know, wish you were dead kind of pain that I hear so many people describe who who have had kidney stones. I haven't had that yet, so I'm I'm, I'm hoping I will somehow circumvent that. Uh, it remains to be seen, but. Um, Anyway, uh, I've, I do thank you for your prayers. I, it's it's um, off and on. I felt felt pretty bad with it, but uh, but all in all, I'm okay and still trying to be somewhat productive. So uh, thank you. At any rate, thank you for your prayers. And uh, Lord willing, next week I will uh, give you a, an update to, to let you know what the what the uro- urologist tells me about this stone. So, all right, let's let's. Again, uh, I want to briefly recap what we talked about last week, in case you did not hear last week's program. Last week, we talked about appropriation, taking the knowledge that we have, the knowledge that we've learned about hermeneutics, and the knowledge that we have of Scripture, and appropriating it, putting this knowledge into practice. Uh, Head knowledge is good, and it is right, but unless it is appropriated, it does us no good. In fact, I would go as far as to say that head knowledge without appropriation uh, is very, very dangerous. It heaps condemnation upon the one in such a state. Uh, It is, in fact, an indication that the person in this state, the person who has head knowledge but chooses not to appropriate it, may, in fact, be an unbeliever. Uh, Let's consider, just for a moment, the parables taught by Christ. Now, last week we didn't talk about the parables, but I, I think this is kind of pertinent to what we're discussing. Uh, the, 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 ter- the parables taught by Christ. Why did our Lord teach in parables? Now, if you ever hear someone tell you that Jesus taught in parables so that the common man could understand deep spiritual truths in layman's terms, then you know that that person does not know what he or she is talking about. Jesus did not teach in parables so that the average everyday man could understand deep spiritual truths Uh, by using everyday language, using stories, uh, the content of which was something that was familiar to the hearers, for example, farming or something like that. That, That's not why he taught in parables. In fact, the opposite of this is true. Jesus taught in parables so that some people would not understand. They would not understand. In Matthew chapter 13, excuse me, Jesus' disciples asked him very directly why he spoke in parables. And Jesus replied, very directly. Matthew chapter 13, verse 11, Jesus says, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Now, 
chase a rabbit here just for a second. Notice Jesus says, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. The, the, the knowledge of God's kingdom, the knowledge of the gospel, is not something that we can gain on our own. Sure, we anybody could understand some intellectual elements of the gospel, make intellectual assent to the gospel, but to truly understand it, to have have the gospel change us, uh, take out our heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh, that's not something that we can do on our own. So the, uh, the, a true knowledge of the gospel, a life-changing knowledge of the gospel, that must be granted. Oh, Justin, well, you're talking about that predestination election stuff. Well, it's in the Bible. It must be granted. We cannot know these things on our own. But anyway, I digress. Uh, Jesus says, but to them it has not been granted. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. End quote. Parables were both acts of judgment and of mercy. Judgment because it kept those who are lost uh, sinners who love their sins, it kept them in the darkness which they loved. They loved the darkness. That's what how the Bible describes those who were not converted. Uh, they love the darkness, hate the light. So it, 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 parables were acts of judgment because it kept them in that darkness which they loved, and yet it was also an act of mercy. Parables were an act of mercy on Christ's part because it by speaking in parables, teaching in parables, it prevented these people who love the darkness, it prevented any more exposure to the truth, which would only increase their condemnation. So, having head knowledge, being exposed to the truth, and yet being in a state in which a, uh, we are perpetually not appropriating it, is dangerous. Very, very dangerous. Jesus taught in parables partially so that the lost would not be exposed to any more truth than what they already had. Does that make sense? It, it was an act of mercy because any more exposure to the truth, any more head knowledge uh, that they would not, uh, uh, any more head knowledge they would not appropriate because they were not regenerate. And so Jesus spoke in parables to kind of. Uh, in a way to protect them and to, to veil their their uh, hearts and their minds, veil them from any more exposure to the truth because if they did not appropriate that truth, that head knowledge, it would only increase their condemnation, their their eternal uh, destiny, their, their, their eternal state in hell would be even worse than what it's going to be, uh, what it was going to be already. And so to prevent them from having any more head knowledge, he taught in parables. Now, um, please hear me. I am not referring to those who are ignorant of spiritual truths uh, simply because they are new in Christ. Uh, maybe they're new in Christ and maybe they're new to the Bible. So I'm not referring to those who are ignorant. But I am referring to those who have been shown the truth and they know the truth and yet refuse to appropriate it. The genuine Christian who is in this state will be disciplined by Christ. Hebrews chapter 12. If a, if a person who is truly regenerate is shown the truth, sees the truth from Scripture, cannot deny it, and yet remains in a state of disobedience, remains in a state of uh, perpetual lack of appropriation, lack of appropriating this knowledge that he has, if that person is a genuine Christian, then this person will be disciplined by Christ, Hebrews chapter 12, and will be brought to a place of repentance. That's, the, that's what happens if we are in Christ, truly in Christ, truly Christians, and uh, maybe we're in some kind of sin, or uh, we have erroneous views on things, bad theology. Once we are shown the truth, once we are shown the truth, we are accountable for that truth. We are accountable for what has been shown to us. We are accountable for what God's Word says. And if we choose 
if, if after seeing the truth we still refuse to appropriate it, if we're truly Christians, then Christ will discipline us. He will bring us to a place of discipline, Hebrews chapter 12, and that is designed to bring us to a place of genuine repentance. Now, uh, the, the person who stays in a state of perpetual disobedience to the Word of God and the person who is not convicted of this in his conscience, very important, okay, very, very important to hear this, the person who feels no conviction for his disobedience, no godly sorrow, that person is an unbeliever. That person is an unbeliever. That's what an unbeliever does. Uh, refuses to repent, does not care what is shown to him from the Word of God, refuses to repent, shows himself to be an unbeliever. That's what we see with Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, uh, dealing with church discipline, Jesus gives us these parameters, gives us these step-by-step instructions, how to do church discipline. If a, if a professing Christian, a professing brother or sister in Christ is in some um, habitual sin, and we know about that. Steps are very clear. You go to that person, confront them in their sin. If they repent, then wonderful. You know, praise the Lord, you have won your brother or you have won your sister, and it need not be discussed anymore. Uh, that's what church discipline is designed to do. However, if that person does not repent, then Jesus says, go and take one or two more with you the second time, you can you confront that person again, and if the person is uh, is is convicted and repents of his sin, then his or her sin, then wonderful, praise the Lord. You have won your brother, you have won your sister. No need to talk about it anymore. Don't go around town saying, "Hey, praise the Lord, so and so repented." Let me tell you what he repented of. No, it's done. It's done. You covered. Done. Don't talk about it anymore. Uh, you've won your brother. You've won your sister. However, if that person still refuses to repent, then you go and tell it to the church. That's right. You get up in front of the entire congregation and you tell the congregation who this person is and what the sin is, that this person will not um, repent of this sin. And if the person then, uh, through, you know, when the church hears this, and I'm, I know I'm chasing a rabbit here, I'm sorry, but when the church hears this, people who are in the church, and they confront the person or they see the person, and if the person still refuses to repent, even after it being told to the church, then uh, you put that person out of the church. Why? Because that person has proven himself or herself to be an unbeliever, to be unregenerate. Because the mark of a genuine Christian, when confronted with sin, will bend the knee, will repent. Um, may not be overnight, may not be instantaneously, but after the first step, after the second step, after the third step, if that person is a genuine Christian, at least after the third step, he's going to bend the knee, he's going to repent. And if he doesn't, he proves himself to be an unbeliever, a false convert, and therefore you put that person out of the church. You can still pray for them, but um, they are not welcome in the church. So, um, all of that to say, the, the person who feels no conviction for his disobedience, who may know the truth intellectually, but feels no conviction, no godly sorrow over his sin, uh, that person is an unbeliever, is lost. may think he's a Christian, but he's not. Um, and by the way, none of us know. You know, I can't look into anybody's... Uh, eyes or look into their peer into their soul and know whether or not that person is feeling godly sorrow you know it's not something that we can know for sure but for the person who does not feel godly sorrow over his or her sin that person is not a believer so all of this to say appropriation for what we know is paramount it is paramount the importance of appropriating what we know literally cannot be overstated that that importance cannot be overstated so, a little bit of recap from last week. This week, I would like us to talk about proclamation. Last week, we talked about appropriation, appropriating what we know. This week, I want us to talk a little bit about proclamation, and we should, Lord willing, uh, finish up our series on hermeneutics with this program. 
Proclamation, of course, is proclaiming the truth we know and we have already appropriated. Um, very important that we note that order, by the way. First, we gain knowledge, and we gain knowledge, hopefully, at something we're doing throughout our entire lives. But the knowledge that we have, we have that knowledge, then we appropriate it, and then we proclaim it. Very important to keep it in that order. Um, if you are, if you know some things about, if you know some spiritual truths, if you if you have intellectual assent to any number of biblical doctrines, but are not appropriating those doctrines, then don't go out and start proclaiming those doctrines. Okay, if you have the knowledge and are not appropriating it, don't go out and start uh, proclaiming what you have not yourself appropriated. Uh, that is the definition of a hypocrite, and um, I have known a couple of uh, street preachers out there uh, preaching the gospel who are in uh, gross, unrepentant sin, and uh, so that is um, that is a, a blasphemy. It's a very serious thing. So um, we need to be very careful that what we knowledge that we have, we appropriate it in our lives first, and then we go out and proclaim it. Um, I, I know some people who, um, as as preachers, and I myself am one, those of you know my, heard me talk about my testimony, um, be converted, genuinely converted as a preacher, but um, at any rate, it's important that we have our knowledge, then we appropriate it. Before we go out and proclaim it, we've got to make sure we appropriate it, so keep those steps in order. All right, proclamation, proclaiming the truth we know and have appropriated. Let me read a couple of passages of Scripture to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 through 5. The Apostle Paul says, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. Sometimes in English we have to be careful with the, uh, you know, the punctuation and, and the the flow of it. Might we might get off track a little bit. Uh, Paul says, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom. There's a comma there in most of your Bibles, but um, it's it's a little bit stronger than a comma. It, there, there's a break in thought here. I did not come, Paul is saying, I did not come with superiority, superiority of speech or of wisdom. And kind of implied here, Paul is saying, rather I came proclaiming to you the testimony of God. So a little bit of break in thought there. There's two different thoughts. He's saying, I did not come. In other words, I did not come with cleverness of speech. I did not convince anybody of the truth of the gospel by how clever I was, by how articulate I was. Uh, I did not come telling any entertaining stories. I wasn't about entertainment. Rather, I proclaim to you the testimony of God. Verse 2, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Now let's pause here, verse 3. Weakness and trembling refers not to timidity. Paul is not talking about um, that, he, that he was timid in the gospel. He's not saying that he came in timidity. For Paul was anything but timid. He preached the gospel fearlessly, so he was anything but timid. Rather, this weakness and fear refers to his great concern over some issue. He was burdened. He had great concern, uh, great concern for his his recipients, and um, and fear. When he says, "I came in fear," this is not to be understood as a fear for his own life. He was not fearful for his own life. Rather, the fear, I think, that the Apostle Paul is describing here is, is fear of his gospel being re, uh, rejected. The, the, that his recipients, his hearers, would reject the gospel. That is what he was fearful of. Not that he didn't have power in the gospel, because he obviously did. We'll read that passage in just a second. But Paul knew, Paul was very aware of the dreadful consequences of rejecting the gospel, and so he had this fear, in a sense of fear for those who would hear him, and the consequences, the eternal consequences that they would face if they rejected his gospel, as he sometimes referred to the gospel as his, as 
his gospel, my gospel, but the gospel. He was fearful of that. And, um, you know, I think that's interesting. Let's remember that this is the Apostle Paul. This is, this is the man who wrote Ephesians 1, very clearly talking about election, predestination, the sovereignty of God and salvation. This is the man who wrote Romans chapter 9. The whole chapter talking about the sovereignty of God and salvation, uh, and yet Paul was still fearful for those who rejected it. So, uh, I mean, you want to talk about a man who who believed and understood and taught God's sovereignty and salvation? That would be the Apostle Paul, absolutely. And yet, he had this fear. He had this. He had this great concern this this uh, he came in much trembling he had this great concern for those who would reject the gospel and um, one of the things that I appreciate about uh, some some uh, preachers who are who are five-point Calvinists if you will who, who believe in the biblical doctrine of election uh, they know that God is sovereign in salvation and yet uh, they plead with people to repent plead with people to to turn from their sins and to place their trust in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, what he did for us on the cross, who have concern, who are who are burdened for the lost. And, um, and I, I think that's a healthy balance. The Apostle Paul certainly seemed to have it. He did have it. And I think that's a balance that, that we should have. I believe in the doctrines of grace. I believe in God's sovereignty and salvation. And yet, I, um, I am fearful. Uh, I'm burdened by people who reject it. Some of you have heard some of my previous programs know that the, our neighbor here in the in the trailer park, uh, his name is, is Jody, and, and um, he's clearly rejected the gospel, flat out rejected it. Wants to have nothing to do with it. Uh, he's a you know he's a he's a bit of an odd bird, but. Um, Kathy and I have tried to witness to him and share the gospel with him as many ways as we know how to do it, and yet he just—he seems like he's one of—he is one of those Romans one kinds of people who has been um, turned over, and uh, it would seem that there is no hope for him. Still pray for him, but he seems very, very hardened to the gospel, and so, and uh, you know you get to know this guy, and he's—he's he's clearly dead in his trespasses and sin. There's, there's no understanding. It, it seems like no matter how we frame it, no matter how we we present the gospel to him, the, the, the light's just not coming on. And I and I know God is sovereign in salvation. I believe that. I preach that. I teach that. I know he is. And yet, I am I'm burdened for him because I, I don't want him to die and, and endure the wrath of God for all of eternity. I don't want that for him. Uh, so, uh, I think that's a, you know, Paul had this, this seemingly balance in his life, and I'm not saying that I'm all that in a bag of chips, and I've got it all figured out, and I've got this perfect balance, and I don't, please don't take it that way, but uh, I think it's healthy, I think it's good for us to, to, yes, to have confidence in, in God's sovereignty, and, and have confidence in the doctrines of grace, doctrine of election that is so clearly taught in scripture, and yet we still we still plead with people. We still plead with people because you know what? Something that I have come to to, to know and understand and, and see for myself in the last several years, four five years, something that I've come to, to see. And you never know, dear ones. I'm chasing a rabbit again. I know. I'm sorry, but uh, you never know when the light's going to come on. You never know when the light may come on with somebody. Yes, there is a sense in which the time comes we have to shake the dust off of our feet. And oftentimes I feel like that time has come with Jody. I think it may have. But, you know, I don't know. Maybe maybe God will use somebody besides me. Somebody years down the road to, to, to reach Jody with the gospel. I don't know. But you never know when the light will come on. You know, have, if, if we could go back 2,000 years and look at Saul before he was converted, and we could see how Saul was persecuting the believers, throwing them into prison, overseeing their executions. Um, I mean, this was a man who hated, hated 
Christians, I mean, with a deep-seated, visceral hatred. And yet, God saved him on the Damascus Road. Uh, it, it would have, before his conversion, it would have looked like Saul would, was somebody that God had turned over. He would have, he would have been a classic Romans 1. And yet, God still saved him. So you never know, you never know when that light's gonna, when that light is gonna turn on in somebody. But, um, so anyway, I don't know. I don't, I don't think God is going to reach our neighbor, um, through us, through Kathy and me. I just don't, don't think he is. He may yet, but I, I don't think so. Uh, but I, I do pray that somebody later down the road will come to him with the same message, and, and I pray that the light comes on. So anyway, I know I chased a rabbit. Let's continue verse 4. Paul says, And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. Not, you know, Paul felt no need to be entertaining, no need to, to tickle people's ears, no need to tell them funny stories to keep their attention. But in the demonstration of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit and of power, so that, verse 5, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Paul did not come in persuasive words. He did not come and entertain people. And that's why I have, I have such a difficulty with preachers who get up and tell funny stories. Um, tell, you know, just tickle people's ears. That's why I have such a problem with churches like Ed Young Jr.'s church. That is a, a literally, it's a three-ring circus. And they get up there and their, their, their services are full of, it's just carnal. Uh, secularism and uh, playing secular songs and, and uh, you know, just catering to the flesh. That man, Ed Young Jr. and others like him, they can talk all day long about how much they believe in the inerrancy of God. I mean, the inerrancy of Scripture. They can talk all day long about how much they believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, although I honestly, I've never heard any young junior say that he believes in the sufficiency of Scripture, but I'm sure if pressed, he would say he would, if pressed. They can do that all day long. I can tell you they do not believe it. Ed Young Jr. does not believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. He does not believe in the power of the gospel. Because there is so much worldliness in his church by design. I mean, he puts it in there intentionally. I can tell you that uh, Rick Warren does not believe in the power of the gospel. Does not believe in the sufficiency of scripture. Why? Because he goes out of his way to keep from mentioning Christ. He goes out of his way to, to, to prevent teaching on the ex exclusivity of the gospel the sufficiency of Scripture. I mean, he, he's so ecumenical. He holds hands with everybody from the Catholics to, to, to Muslims. So, uh, you know, and so, somebody like that, somebody somebody like Rick Warren, who was invited to speak, be the keynote speaker at the National, let's see, the North, North American Islamic Society, the North American Islamic Society. He was asked to be their keynote speaker, I think it was back in 2009, about five years ago asked to be their keynote speaker, and he got up and he gave an address. And he talked about how we're two great monotheistic faiths. We have so much in common. Talking to a bunch of imams, a bunch of Muslims. What a perfect opportunity to share the gospel, right? Did he do it? No. No, he didn't. Not even tangentially did he present the gospel. So what does that tell us? It tells us he's ashamed of the gospel. He's ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For if he were not, he certainly would have taught it. Certainly would have given all of those Muslims, all of the Muslims, not only who were there, but who were listening or watching worldwide, would, get, would have given them the gospel. But he didn't do it because he's ashamed of it. That's what Paul says, Romans 1.16. Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. For everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. What is the power of God unto salvation? Miracles, signs and wonders, entertaining church services? No, power of God is the gospel. The Apostle Paul says, 1 Timothy chapter 4, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, 
and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Apostle Paul's writing to Timothy and he says, Timothy, I charge you, I give you a very solemn charge in the presence of God in Christ Jesus. This is not an, uh, this is not an um, uh, suggestion. This is not a suggestion. This is not uh, some um, word of wisdom. It's not a recommendation. It's a charge. A charge that he gave to Timothy in the presence of God in Christ Jesus. Preach the word. Don't entertain people. Don't try to make people laugh. Nothing wrong with laughing in and of itself. But preach the word. And be ready to do this. Be ready to preach the word in season and out of season. In other words, all the time. Be ready to preach the word. And preaching comes, it, it reproves, it rebukes, it exhorts, encourages with great patience and instruction. So friends, we are to, we are to be preaching the word. We are to be preaching the gospel. Uh, and you've heard that old cliche, uh, preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. Um, well, that's very cliche, but it's not biblical. I mean, there is that sense in which our lives are to be, we are to preach the gospel with our lives, certainly, with our obedience, with our, our um, fidelity to the word of God, with our, our uh, willingness to stand up for God's truth, with how we treat our friends and um, strangers. Uh, you know, we are to, to, we are to, to be kind. Uh, we are to be gentle. Certainly all of those things. Um, but that's, that's not enough. It's not enough to just be a nice person. It's not enough to just help little old ladies across the street. It's not enough to just go out in the world and, and have a smile on our face so people can see how happy we are and how content we are, and they'll want to come to know Jesus through that. No, no, we are to preach the word. Uh, we're to, and we're to do this in deed and in word. We are to be verbally communicating the gospel. Some people do that in uh, going out in public, in street preaching, open-air preaching. I applaud that. I'm so thankful for people who do that. I applaud it. Um, I don't do a lot of it. I've done a little bit of it, but I've, I've not done a lot. It's not. I'm, I don't think that's really where my area of gifting is, but I, but I have done it, and I would be willing to do it again. But I, you know, I don't think I'm the most gifted street preacher out there. In fact, I know I'm not. It's just not, it's not really my... I think where I'm most comfortable, and I think where I'm I'm, I'm most gifted. Um, but there are some men who do that. And I'm very thankful for them. Uh, we are to be preaching the word. Maybe you're not a street preacher, maybe, but you can you can you can communicate the gospel to people, and you can do it regularly. You know, God God will give us opportunities to share His gospel with people. Uh, he will. Be be ready to do that. Be prepared to do it in season, out of season. Always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you. So preach the word. Communicate the gospel to people. Verbally communicate the gospel to people. Do that. Uh, Ezra chapter 7. Ezra chapter 7. Verses, uh, I believe this is verse 10. I kind of lost my notes here. But Ezra chapter 7 verse 10. I love this. It says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his, meaning God's, statutes and ordinances in Israel. Love that verse. Notice the order. Ezra had set his, his heart to study the law of the Lord. What's the first step? We study God's word. Now, it's a lifelong process, but we study God's word. We study and we gain head knowledge. We study the law of the Lord and then says, and to practice it. So Ezra studied the law and he practiced it. He appropriated what he learned. He studied the law, he practiced it, and it says, and to teach his statutes. It's, he set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to practice it, and to teach his statutes, teach the statutes of God and ordinances to the people of Israel. So there's the three steps, and we've got to keep those in order. Now, start with the studying, then you appropriate your knowledge, 
then you teach what you know. And all these threes by these three steps, by the way, should be continuing throughout all of the days that God has given to us. I want to uh, end with John chapter 17. This is the high priestly prayer. John chapter 17, if you have your Bibles, we'll read verses 17 and 18, not the whole thing, but this is the, the high priestly prayer. This is the longest recorded prayer, recorded prayer, mind you, longest recorded prayer that we have of our Savior. This was shortly before he went to the cross, and Jesus is praying for his disciples, not only his disciples, but if you read the whole context of the prayer, he's also praying for those whom the Father had given him. But I love what he says here in verse 17. Jesus says, speaking to his uh, of his disciples, he says, he prays to the Lord, he says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Uh, as you sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world. And for that, for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also might, might be sanctified through the truth. Now, watch verse 20. I love this. Verse 20, Jesus says, Neither pray I for these alone, but also for them which shall believe on me through their word. I could just about preach myself happy on that verse. Now think about this. Jesus is he's praying for his disciples, and he's just about to go on the cross. And you remember that when, when Jesus was crucified, all of his disciples were gone. I mean, they scattered like a covey of quail. The only one who was still there was John. All the others got out of Dodge because they were afraid they were going to be the next ones up on that cross. And here in this high priestly prayer, you know, Jesus didn't have, from an earthly standpoint, looking at his disciples at this point when he was praying this prayer, knowing what was going to happen, uh, at, at this point, from an earthly standpoint, he didn't, wouldn't seem to have a whole lot of reason to be real confident in his disciples because they were all going to desert him. Uh, Peter would be betray him, deny him three times. Jesus knew that. But notice in verse 20, he says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe on me through their word. Jesus assumed the success of the mission that he had given them. He, uh, he assumed their success. He knew that there would be people who would believe on him through their signs and wonders, through their entertaining church services, uh, through their attempts to be relevant. No, through their word, through their preaching, he knew that there would be people, many, many people, who would come to new life in him, new, have a new heart, be granted genuine repentance, genuine faith, be made alive in Christ. He knew that there would be millions of people who would do that. Why? Because they would respond to their preaching. Respond to the gospel. He assumed that they, that they would be successful in the mission that he gave them. He prayed for those who would believe in him through their word, through their preaching. God's word is sufficient. So, dear ones, when we go out, let us go out in confidence, not in ourselves, uh, but confidence in our King, confidence in the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And um, that's comforting. That is comforting. It is encouraging, knowing that we can go out and, and simply present the gospel, whether it's through open-air preaching whether it's through one-on-one -on -one conversations with a friend or a family member, whether it's somebody standing in line at the grocery store or whatever, you know, God will give us opportunities to present the gospel, share the gospel with people. And, and we can have confidence knowing that God will bring those who are His to a saving knowledge of Christ through the power of the gospel. We don't have to worry about couching it in, in clever terms. We don't have to worry about being perfectly articulate. We don't have to worry about uh, make, making it look appealing or relevant to people. Just give them the gospel. Just give them the gospel. Um, kind of illustrate this. 
a few years ago, two, three years ago, I can't remember when it was, but I was on an airplane. And because of my handicap, they allow me to pre-board usually. And so I, um, they called for the pre-boarders. And so I got on the plane and my seat was, oh, two thirds, three quarters of the way down the airplane, down the fuselage. So I, I got on and uh, walked back there and the stewardess put my crutches up in the overhead bin, you know, and so sat down and put my um, seatbelt on. And just a couple of minutes later, all the other passengers start coming on the airplane. And uh, I'm just kind of watching them come in. It's a pretty big plane. It's a long flight that I was on. And and I looked down the aisle and uh, here comes this old, old man walking down the aisle, kind of hunched over. And he has a, he has a baseball cap on and a, a navy blue baseball cap. And on the the bill, not the bill, I don't guess, not the bill, but the front of the cap, whatever that's called, the front of the cap, had, there were gold letters, WWII veteran, so World War II veteran. And I've always had a, a bit of an interest in, in history, and my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, served in World War II, and so I saw this gentleman, and and, uh, and uh, I just said a quick little prayer, Lord, let him sit by me. And wouldn't you know it, out of all the seats on that airplane, he walked down that aisle, and he sat right next to me. And uh, I introduced myself. I told him you know, my name. I said, uh, my name's Justin. And he said, hi, Justin, my name is Fred. And so I, I said, um, Fred, where are you, you headed? So we you know, got a little small talk. And, and I said, uh, Fred, I noticed that you're a World War II veteran. He said, yes, I am. And he, he started telling me, I told him that my grandfather served in the uh, European theater in World War II. And, uh, and he told me that he also was in the European theater. And, and um, he started telling me some of the things that, that he experienced in, in World War II. And he was, he was one of the grunts. He was, he was a, a, a foot soldier. And he talked about being in these battles and, and foxholes and could hear the, the bullets zinging over his head and uh and um i had an opportunity i said uh, i said wow fred i said I, I bet when you were in one of those foxholes and battle probably made you think what would happen to you if one of those bullets had had your name on it and um he said yeah i did he was he said it's scared you know and who wouldn't be and i said well Fred, I'm, I'm glad one of those bullets didn't have your name on it. Glad you're here. I, I said, but, you know, one of these days we are all going to die. That's an appointment that we're all going to one day meet. And I said, uh, Fred, when that time comes for you, do you know where you'll go? And he looked at me and he said, no, I don't. And I said, well, Fred, could I have just a, a few minutes to share with you the gospel, what the Bible says about that? And his words to me were, I wish you would. I wasn't expecting that, but he said, I wish you would. And so over the next, I don't know, four, five, six minutes, something like that, I shared the gospel with him. I talked about how we are all sinners. We've all broken the laws of God. We deserve God's wrath. And if we die in our sins, we will endure the wrath of God for all of eternity. Uh, I said, but there is good news. I told him about Christ, who he is, that he came and he died on the cross and that he bore the wrath of God so that we would not have to. He was sinless, the perfect sacrifice. He took our place on the cross. He bore the wrath of God in our place. And on the third day, he was bodily raised from the dead. And he proved himself to be who he said he was, God in human flesh. And um, I told Fred, I said, Fred, we can't, work our way into heaven. There are no works that we can do. Uh, salvation is a gift, must be received, must turn from sins, place our trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross. And um, so anyway, I just shared the gospel with him for a little while. And I didn't press him into saying the sinner's prayer. Okay, now Fred, now that you've heard this, pray this prayer. No, I don't, don't recommend doing that. I, in fact, don't do that. Just present the gospel. Just present the gospel. And uh, I said, Fred, does this, does what I, what I said, does this make sense to you? And he looked at me and he said, he said, Justin, I have never heard that 
he had never, I later found out he was Catholic. Uh, but this man was in his upper 80s, at least, if not pushing 90. I mean, he's an old man. And, and he had never heard that. Living in the United States of America for almost a century, and he had never heard the gospel. He said, Justin, I've never heard that. And I said, Fred, does, this, does it make sense to you? And he said that it did. And he said, Justin, he said, he said I want to thank you. And the lady in the seat in front of me kind of leaned her head back over, uh, look, looked back towards us, kind of leaned her head back. And she said, and I want to thank you too. I was listening to every word you said. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. So, dear ones, uh, go out, be encouraged. Go out and proclaim what you know. Proclaim what you have appropriated. And have every confidence, not in yourself, not in myself. We should have every confidence in our great God, in his glorious gospel. So, thank you, dear ones. Thank you for listening. And uh, I want to wish you and your family a very Merry Christmas. Um, in fact, I want to close. I know I've said I'm going to close before, but I, I want to close. I, I read a blog post from Grace to You, and uh, written by John MacArthur. And it's entitled Born to Die. And given that we are uh, leading up into Christmas now, this is a week of Christmas, I want to read this blog post to you, and, and then we'll close. But it's very good. Uh, John MacArthur writes, That first Christmas, earth was oblivious to the significance of a simple birth in a quiet town. But heaven wasn't. The holy angels waited in anticipation to break forth in praise and worship and adoration at the birth of the newborn Christ. This child's birth meant deliverance for mankind. The angel told Joseph he will save his people from their sins. Unlike, and I think this is interesting, MacArthur says, Unlike Isaac, who ascended the mountain unaware he was to be the sacrifice. Jesus descended from heaven in full awareness of what the Father had in store for him. Scripture records for us what may have been a farewell message Jesus gave just prior to his incarnation. And it's taken from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 7. When he comes, Christ, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. That passage of Scripture gives us a remarkable look at the heart of the Savior before his birth. He knew he was entering the world to be the final and ultimate sacrifice for sin. His body had been divinely prepared by God specifically for that purpose. Jesus was going to die for the sins of the world, and he knew it. Moreover, he was doing it willingly. That was the whole point of the Incarnation. The important issue of Christmas is not so much that Jesus came, but why he came. There was no salvation in his birth, nor did the sinless way he lived his life have any redemptive force of its own. His example, as flawless as it was, could not rescue men from their sins. Even his teaching, the greatest truth ever revealed to man, could not save us from our sins. There was a price to be paid for our sins. Someone had to die, and only Jesus could do it. Jesus came to earth, of course, to reveal God to mankind. He came to teach truth. He came to fulfill the law. He came to offer his kingdom. He came to show us how to live. He came to reveal God's love. He came to bring peace. He came to heal the sick. He came to minister to the needy. But all those reasons are incidental to his ultimate purpose. He could have done them all without being born as a human. He could have simply appeared, like the angel of the Lord often did in the Old Testament, and accomplished everything in the, in the list above without actually becoming a man. But he had one more reason for coming. He came to die. Here's a side to the Christmas story that isn't often told. Those soft little hands 
fashioned by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb, were made so that nails might be driven through them. Those baby feet, pink and unable to walk, would one day stagger up a dusty hill to be nailed to a cross. That sweet infant's head, with sparkling eyes and eager mouth, was formed so that some day men might force a crown of thorns onto it. That tender body, warm and soft, wrapped in swaddling clothes, would one day be ripped open by a spear. Jesus was born to die. Don't think I'm trying to put a damper on your Christmas spirit. Far from it. For Jesus' death, though devised and carried out by men with evil intentions, was in no sense a tragedy. In fact, it represents the greatest victory over evil anyone has ever accomplished. The author of Hebrews illustrates how the full story of his birth includes his sacrificial death. Hebrews chapters, uh, chapter 2 says this, But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. MacArthur continues, It's appropriate to commemorate the birth of Christ, but don't make the mistake of leaving him as a baby in a manger. Keep in mind that his birth was just the first step in God's glorious plan of redemption. Remember that it's the triumph of Christ's sacrificial death that gives meaning to his humble birth. You can't truly celebrate one without the other. Indeed, and well said. And so, dear ones, I leave you with that, and I do want to wish you and yours a very Merry Christmas, wherever you may be, uh, whether with family and friends or apart from them. I uh, wish you a very Merry Christmas, a very meaningful one, um, as we think. Uh, you know, Jesus does not, we often think of Christmas as being the birthday of Christ. Uh, well, it really wasn't. Jesus does not have a birthday, for he has always existed. He is eternal, pre-existent, pre-existence with God. He does not have a birthday. He did, he did have a day of incarnation, but he did not have a birthday. But um, he came, he was incarnated for one overarching purpose, and that was to die, to pay for our sins. And so we praise him for that. Thank you very much for listening. Lord willing, we'll be back with you next week. And until then, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to the Justin Peters program. If you have a question or comment for Justin, or would like to invite him to come and speak at your church or conference, contact him through his website, justinpeters.org. That's justinpeters.org.